So I'm Greg, and uh, uh, today we're talking about the shadow of the cross. That's the title of this message. If you're visiting uh, or are new to Woodland Hills Church, I want to give a little uh, word of warning. <laughs> Run away! Um, we, we at, at, at this church, it's, it's kind of a weird church. Uh, it is weird. But we, we really believe that, that all of our life and worth and significance and security is to come from our relationship with Christ nothing else. Nothing else. And so we don't get life uh, or try to feel good about ourselves because we think we have all the right answers. Uh, we believe it's important. To, beliefs are important, but we don't want to get life from them. And that frees us in some ways to... Um, we're not afraid of, of, of asking tough questions and tackling tough problems. We're not afraid of, of questioning traditional perspectives. Uh, we're not afraid of, of being in process. We don't feel like we have to... I think God likes us more if we have all the things settled or likes us less if we don't. Um, we have a God of grace who invites us to, to use our mind. Come let us reason. And so we are okay with wrestling through issues. We're okay with disagreeing on some things. Uh, it's all even okay to disagree with the preacher. I ain't no pope. So you uh, can disagree with me. So, And I know that some people coming from more traditional churches are kind of shocked by that when we ask these questions out loud. Um, Above all, we, we, we believe that it's, it's important, uh, most important to, to be honest, to be honest and real. And um, God puts a premium on just being honest. And so we believe that, that it's important to be honest and, and, and even raw as we go through some tough issues. So there's some messages where they're more motivational and they kind of rally us and remind us of some biblical truths and we go amen and yay and all that. There's other messages, such as this one, that are, are, are about uh, trying to get our head around something. And um, uh, today is going to be a time where we're going to... Uh, I'm, my goal is to be just very, very, very honest uh, with, with all of you and with pod listeners who are listening. Uh, we're going to be tackling a, a very, very tough que- question, a very difficult problem. We're going to be um, at least looking at a different, non-traditional way of, of interpreting some scripture. Um, and so if you came this morning to have a Sunday morning ear massage, you're in the wrong place. Because <laughs> this ain't going to be no massage. Uh, this is going to be some, some uh, tough stuff. Um, but I think it's vitally important. So last week I began, uh, as we're looking through, going through this thing on Colossians, and we're looking at the Old Testament as a shadow of things to come, I began to just very honestly grapple with what is, I think, one of the most important and one of the most difficult theological issues there are, and that is the whole issue of what do we do with some of these violent, sometimes brutally violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. And we're just wrestling with that. An example, one little example uh, that, uh, of what I'm talking about comes from Jeremiah. He says, and this is just prior to when Babylon is, is going to be attacking uh, Judah, um, Jeremiah uh, says, I will, or has the Lord say, I will smash them, referring to the Israelites as children. I will smash them, one against the other, parents and children alike, or created the connotation of parents and children together, declares the Lord. I will show, I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying me, destroying them. I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but I want to be honest. I mean, about this. This is a horrifically violent portrait of God. Let's get a picture of it. God coming and taking children and parents and smashing them together. 
And he's making a vow. I will, in, in case I feel like I have any mercy or pity or compassion, I'm not going to allow myself to have that. I'm going to smash you. A family smashing deity. It is, honestly, the kind of behavior that you would expect from, you know, the Colombian drug cartel against their worst enemies. And here it's being ascribed to God. And so the question, I mean, we, we, Christians tend to like to sort of kind of soft shoe dance around these kind of issues, but we want to confront it head on. The question, the question is, how is a portrait of God like that, brutally violent portrait like that, consistent with the God who's revealed on the cross? How is that consistent with the, the picture of, of, of God revealed in Jesus, where with his last breath he prays for the mercy, for mercy on those who are executing him? Here in this picture that Jeremiah is giving us, God's making a vow not to have mercy. How are those two things consistent? The cross reveals a God who gives his life, would rather give his life for enemies rather than crush him. Here we have a God who's not just crushing enemies, he's smashing together his own children. How are those consistent? It's a huge problem, would you agree? But it's worse than that. In fact, it's much worse than that because Jesus tells us that all Scripture testifies about him. It, it points to him. For example, in John 5, he says to the Pharisees, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus is not only the subject matter of all Scripture, it all testifies to him, but he's the life of Scripture. In Christ there is life. And so the purpose of Scripture is to point us to the one who gives us life. You take Christ out of the Scripture and there's no life. And so the question is, how does all Scripture point to Christ? We saw last week that the center of what Jesus is about is revealed on the cross. That's the, the, thematic, the theme of his whole life, the, the manifestation of God's radical self-sacrificial love. So how do portraits of God smashing families together point to the self-sacrificial love of God revealed on the cross? Good question. And in fact, this has been the, the, the belief of the church throughout history that Scripture points to Christ. Luther, I think, said it best in a number of places. I've been reading quite a bit of Luther lately as I'm writing this, this book on, on Old Testament violence. But uh, Luther says, a couple of quotes here, it is beyond question that all Scripture point to Christ alone. And then Luther says, when viewed aright, all stories in the Holy Scripture refer to Christ. All stories. That would include the conquest narrative where Yahweh says to go and slaughter everything that breathes, including the infants and women, and, and including the animals. Everything that breathes, slaughter it. How does that point to Christ? My favorite quote of Luther is, he, he adopts Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians 2.2, 2, when Paul says, I know nothing except Christ crucified. And so Luther, I think, rightly applies this to Scripture where, when he says, I see nothing in Scripture except Christ crucified. I see nothing in Scripture except Christ crucified. Well, I see a family smashing deity. Uh, how does that relate to Christ crucified? This is the issue we're struggling with. It is, it is, it is huge. Uh, and it's odd because everyone through our church history says in various ways that all scripture points to Christ, the crucified Christ. But no one that I know of actually shows how it does it. And sometimes it's profoundly easy, but I want to know how these violent portraits of God commanding genocide, smashing families together. I came across one where Yahweh says he's going to rip the fetuses out of the wombs of, of young mothers. How does that point to the crucified Christ? How does that bear witness to the self-sacrificial love of God? 
huge problem. It's huge not just because it's a tough one. It's huge because it is, it is I, I think, the major, or at least one of the major obstacles to non-believers embracing the Bible as the Word of God. And that's one of the reasons why they don't submit their life to Christ. And the answers that we've given have not, on the whole, been very satisfying. But not only that, but it is, I, I'm convinced, one of the major reasons, probably the major reasons why most Christians have trouble believing that God really, really, really is as beautiful as He's revealed to be in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And we say this all the time around here. God, is, God looks like Jesus. He loves like Jesus. He, he sacrifices Himself like Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus says, I, you see me, you see the Father. Okay, look at him. And yet, for most, there's this nagging question in their minds saying, yeah, but what about the family-smashing God of the Old Testament, the genocidal God of the Old Testament? Huge issue. I've um, been wrestling this with for, for several decades. And for years, I, I've tried to uh, resolve this issue by trying to make the horrifically violent portraits of God more Christ-like. And this is what most of the books on this topic do. Um, they, they try to minimize the violence or kind of give reasons why, you know, Yahweh may have acted so violently. And, and so we're trying to pull, bend the, the violent portraits of God towards, towards the crucified Christ. And to be very honest with you, and I, I have always promised the congregation that I would be honest. Um, about three years ago, I, I, I gave up on that. Out of intellectual integrity, to preserve my intellectual integrity, I, I gave up on that project of trying to make the violent portraits of God a little bit more Christ-like. I thought the book that I was going to write was going to just kind of amass all of the best arguments that are out there. I've read, I think, just about every book written on this topic, and I was going to kind of just distill them all and refine them, and that was going to be the book. But about three years ago, I came to the point where I had to admit, at least for me, this doesn't work. I found myself writing stuff I didn't believe. I'm writing out these arguments, and when I'm done with it, I look at it, and it's like, I don't believe that. I hate when that happens. All that research for nothing. It's like, how can I ask people to believe on this basis when I don't? Because, see, here's the, here's the issue. Even if, even if you succeed at making the violent portraits of God as a family-smashing deity or commanding genocide, even if you make them a little bit more just, a little bit less horrific, You've done nothing to show how they point to Christ, the crucified Christ. Uh, it's like you can't inch your way from the genocidal pictures of God to the unfathomably beautiful, self-sacrificial love of God revealed on the cross. Um, and I had to finally get to the point where I had to honestly confess before God that I don't buy this. I don't see any bridge from this to that. And I didn't know where I was going to go with this. But he, something interesting happened to me. Um, as soon as I stopped trying to make the violent portraits of God consistent with the cross, and as soon as I admitted to myself and to God that these violent images conflict and contrast with the cross, a light began to go on. And I began to see, I believe, I began to see how these violent images point to the cross. Because I began to see how these violent images point to the cross the way a shadow points to reality. A shadow points to the reality, it's a shadow of, by being a negative contrast to the reality, it's a shadow of. And that brings us to the verse that we're studying here in Colossians. I shared a little bit of this last week. 
but the team that I processed sermon material with thought I should come back to it and unpack it a little bit more. As with last week, I have a lot to say in a short amount of time to say it. Um, and so it's going to be condensed and intense, and so keep your brains active. Uh, and because this potentially could be a little bit controversial, um, I want to say it right. And so I'm going to stick to my notes much closer than I usually do. I'm going to resist uh, all my ADHD temptations to go off and lie the land and elaborate in different ways. Uh, that can get me in trouble. I'm going to stick to the text here and, uh, and try to say it, it, it right. I want to say, as I said last week, that this is, this is a way that I have found to, re, to approach this issue, uh, to resolve this issue. It's brought a, an inner congruity in, in my mind where there used to be a lot of conflict. Uh, but it doesn't have to be your way. It doesn't have to be your way of resolving this. Um, try it on. If it fits, wear it. Uh, go with it. If it doesn't, then, then find a better way of resolving this issue and make sure you email me because I want to know about it. I'll give you a footnote on my book. Uh, I'm open. My mind is wide open. <laughs> on this. But this is my way of dealing with it. It doesn't have to be yours. It's okay if you totally disagree with this. I'm just offering it because it might help some processes. What's really important is that we're authentic and real as we as we engage in this. And avoid kind of pious cliches and and pat answers if if they don't if they don't adequately address the issue. We got to be real. So here's Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. Uh This is our third swipe at this passage here. Paul says, therefore, and the therefore refers to the work of the cross. Because of the cross, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. Abba, Father, help us to see the reality found in Christ. And help us to be authentic as we wrestle with this issue. Holy Spirit, be here. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul tells the Colossians that uh, he warns them, don't go back to these Old Testament regulations, this law. Because that's a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality is found in Christ. And if you've got the reality, why would you go back to the shadow? A shadow, as we said last week, is a negative contrast to the reality it's a shadow of. Here's the picture of me and my shadow. You might notice there that that, uh, my shadow is me, but minus all light, minus all dimension. The shadow is a negation of me. It's me minus everything that really makes me me, except for a contrasting outline. It's a negative contrast of the real me. And so Paul is saying, and we saw last week that the author of Hebrews says the same thing, that the law, the law is to Christ, what your shadow is to you. It's a negative contrast. And so, at least in some respects, the law, and therefore, the portrait of God that's presupposed in the law, the portrait of this law-oriented deity, that is a revelation not of what God is like, but rather a revelation of what God is not like. The law and the portrait of God presupposed in the law is a negative contrast to the real God. Because the real God is revealed in the cross, which abolishes the law. So Paul says in Romans 7, and he says this in Romans 3 as well, that the law, the law is given as a negative object lesson, among other functions, but it serves as a negative object lesson to drive us to Christ, to show our need for a Savior, to expose sin. It's a shadow of the cross. It's the negation that leads us to the cross. We need to understand how radical that is in a first century Jewish context. 
The law it was, was generally viewed as the means by which we get right with God. This is a positive thing. This is the reality. And the law-orientated de- deity, that's the real God. But then in the light of the cross, Paul turns it all upside down. He says, no, no, that wasn't there to get us, to show us the right way to relate to God. It was there to show us how we can't possibly relate to God. Because no one can keep that law. And that's how we know that we have a need for a Savior. It reveals not what God is like and not the right way to relate to Him. It reveals what God is not like and how we can't possibly relate to Him. It's radical. Last week I proposed that we view every aspect of the Old Testament, including the portraits of God, that contrasts with the cross, where we, where we find reality. We should view all of that along these lines as a shadow of the cross. And so, for example, the law is inextricably bound up with the nationalism of the Old Testament, which is also inextricably bound up with the, the justified violence, the sanctioned violence of the Old Testament. And when, when, when Jesus comes on the scene, everybody expects that he, if he's the Messiah, well, he's going to reinforce the law, crack down on it. He's going to reinforce Jewish nationalism. He's going to reinforce the use of violence against God's enemies. But Jesus does the exact opposite. The exact opposite. And in that light, I'm proposing that we see the law and the nationalism and the violence of the Old Testament, along with the portraits of God they presuppose, that it's all, they're all negative object lessons that are given ahead of time to prepare humanity to finally receive the real deal. And the real deal is Jesus Christ crucified. That's where we find out what God's really like. And that's where we find out how we can relate to God. And that's how we find out what God's will is for how we're supposed to live. Everything that conflicts with that is a shadow. It's a contrast. This is why Paul calls the cross a scandal in the New Testament. It's a scandal. It's an offense. It's shocking. When the Messiah shows up, he's not the Messiah that anybody was expecting. In some respects, um, you know, the, the way, when Jesus shows up, what he does to the biblical narrative, it's kind of like what happens if you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense or The Book of Eli. Have you seen those movies? Where the last minute, even the last few seconds of the show, completely reframes the entire show. You go, what? <laughs> and, and, and you have to, now everything, everything you thought was one way turns out to be the opposite. Well, when Jesus shows up, he radically reframes everything. That law that you thought was so positive, you're so proud of it, it's foundation of your nationalism, foundation of your, uh, the violence you use against enemies, well, that law turns out to be all a negative thing. It's a shadow. You thought it was reality? No, it's a shadow. You want reality? Here it is. Jesus Christ crucified. It's radical. It's radical. And uh, in that light, the most important consequence of this is that we, we, we need to see how these shadows of the law and nationalism and violence, they point to the cross where we find reality, but they are not themselves a reality that competes with the cross. The law was given to lead humanity to the reality that's found in the cross, and, and, and the law and nationalism and violence, they're a shadow of the cross because if we look at them through the lens of the cross, we can see the cross in them, even in the horrifically violent portraits such as the one where he smashes families together. When we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, I'm proposing that we see, we can see the same humble God who stooped out of love to bear our sins on the cross. And these portraits of God 
that are shadows, we can see that same God stooping out of love to bear the sin of his people in the Old Testament. We can see that the same humble God who stooped out of love on the cross to bear our sins and take on an ugly appearance that mirrors our sin, reflects it back to us, that same God was stooping in the Old Testament out of love to take on the appear, an appearance that mirrors the sin and guilt of his people at that time, the shadow of the cross. And the most important implication of all this is that rather than compromising the beauty, the unfathomable beauty of the God who's revealed on the cross, rather than compromising that by smooshing it together with these horrifically violent portraits of God in the Old Testament and coming up with this amalgamated kind of a portrait of God, rather than doing that, this shadow interpretation of the Old Testament would lead us to say, to just simply admit that those portraits conflict and they contrast with the cross, but precisely because they conflict with the cross, they point to the cross the way a shadow points to reality. They point by way of a negative contrast. Following this? But see, we'll never see how the violent portraits point to the cross as a negative contrast unless we admit that these portraits really do contrast with the cross. We'll never see how they point to the cross as long as we're trying to make these violent portraits consistent with the cross. As long as I was trying to make it consistent, coming up with this kind of smooshed together portrait of God, as long as I was trying to make it consistent, I could never see how they actually point to the cross. I was allowing them to compete with the cross and compromise the cross. But when I finally gave up and said, nope, they just conflict, well, boom. Now I see how they point to the cross by way of a negative contrast. And to be honest with you, to be absolutely honest with you, I don't see any other way of, of, of seeing how portraits of God slaughtering families by smashing parents and children together, how they can point to the self-sacrificial love revealed on the cross, except by way of a negative contrast. But that's just my opinion. And if you find a better way of accounting for this, uh, then, 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 then email me. I'm all ears. Okay, so I shared this last week. And some folks found it profoundly liberating. I, I had people, a few people in tears because it finally brought congruity to this thing that was messing up their head for a long time. But it also raised a lot of questions, a lot of really good questions, which I, I, I think is great. I, if, if, if I get gray matter between your ears churning on theological to- topics, I've done my job. Uh, by that criteria, last week was a great sermon because a lot of people had a headache I, as you're chewing on this stuff. That, that's... That's great. That's great. And we'll address as many of those questions as we can in, uh, in, in August. But the team that I work out sermons with thought it'd be good to take the, the one question that was asked most frequently and deal with it. It came in a lot of different ways, but that one question is basically this. Did God actually engage in the shadow activity the Old Testament ascribes to him, that violent activity that the Old Testament ascribes to him, or did he merely allow his people to think he was engaging in this activity. Bingo. Good. Some people pointed out the shortcoming of the analogy I used last week of that missionary couple. Because they pointed out that, that in, in, in the Old Testament, God doesn't just go along with this barbaric violence and appear to condone it. He leads the charge. And sometimes he engages in it. He's the one who, who commands to slaughter everything that breathes. And he's the one who smashes parents and children together. And he's the one, according to Hosea, who rips the fetuses out of the wombs of, of young, mother, uh, young mothers. And so the question is, does God actually do these things or, or not? 
That's a fair question. So far as I can see, there's two possible ways of answering this. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> Sometimes I'm really, really smart. <laughs> see, you figure it out. God bless you. Have a great day. Okay, look, at a case can be made for both. You can make a case for both. And so I'm going to first give the positive answer. Yes, he did these things. And then I'll give the negative answer. Um, and, um, and then you can decide. So the positive answer is this. There are scholars who agree that, that Jesus Christ is the one perfect revelation of God. And they therefore agree that to know what God really is like, you got to look at the cross. And therefore they agree that the portraits of God as a, as a uh, law-oriented, nationalistic, violent-prone deity are shadows. They agree with all that. But in their view, God nevertheless actually engaged in the activities that the authors ascribed to him, commanding people to slaughter everything that breathes and smashing kids and parents together. Because in their view, God had no other choice. They point out, rightly, that, that at this time, violence was basically the language, the only language that people understood. And so, in their view, God had to stoop to playing the role of an ancient Near Eastern warrior God if he was to continue to further his sovereign plans through his people. But they insist that that violent activity doesn't reveal what God really is like. It doesn't reveal his true will. It's God accommodating the sin of his people. If you want to know what God really is like, you got to look to the cross. And if you want to know what God's will for his people is, you got to look to the cross. Now, whatever else you can say for or against that view, I want to applaud the fact that they agree that that the full revelation of God is in Jesus Christ and that, that we should never compromise that. And I want to applaud the fact that this view uh, agrees that it's never appropriate for God's people, to, the fo- followers of Jesus, to jump over Jesus and go back to the violent stuff of the Old Testament in order to justify their hatred and, and, and violence towards others, as so many people are doing today. Uh, that's utterly inappropriate. However you resolve this issue, lock it in. We take our marching orders from Jesus and nobody else. So I applaud this view um, uh, to that extent. And this view may be right. And if this view helps you make sense out of this and, and embrace the Bible as God's word while keeping your eyes focused on Jesus, then embrace that view. Amen. At the same time, I will tell you that I, I've entertained this view uh, for, for some time, but I have some problems with it. Biggest one being this, just being honest here. I really have trouble believing that God is sometimes forced by circumstances uh, to act in ways that utterly contradict the way he reveals himself to be on Calvary. I, I, I find that to be a, a problematic thought. Now, people always say, well, you know, God is God, and God can do whatever he wants, and no one can hold him to account, and if he wants to be inconsistent, he can be. And you know what? God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. Amen to that. But see, the problem is, is that God is the one who tells us in no uncertain terms that he looks like Jesus, dying on the cross for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. He's the one who tells us what his character is really like. And maybe it's just me, but I honestly have trouble envisioning that Jesus coming down from heaven and smashing parents and children together and commanding his people to slaughter everything that breathes and ripping fetuses out of, out of the womb and doing it for any reason. Maybe it's just me, but I, I find that to be a, a, a troubling thought. If, if there's any other way of interpreting passages uh, that doesn't require us to envision Jesus doing that, then I, I think we should at least consider it. All right? And for my two cents, I actually believe there is a way. And the way is found by looking more intently at the cross. In fact, I'm, 
I'm becoming increasingly convinced that you know, Paul says that all the wisdom of God is found in Christ. And I, I suspect the answer to every question, every important theological question, is found by looking at the cross. And so now I want to go to the second answer here and, and just kind of lay this out here. And the answer is based on looking more intently at the cross. Uh, as I get ready to uh, unpack this in the next 15 minutes, um, I want to remind you that I'm not asking anyone to agree with me on this, all right? I'm just putting it out there, uh, hoping that it helps some people get congruity about this the way it has done it for me. Um, I, on the other hand, it may end up that I'm the only fruitcake on the planet that believes this stuff, and I'm okay with that too. Yeah, whatever. I'm going to be sharing in the next 15 minutes something that I spend almost 400 pages unpacking and defending in this book that I'm writing, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. So obviously, I can't begin to do this view justice. Uh, what, 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 in the next 15 minutes, you should basically regard it as sort of a movie trailer for the, the book that's coming, and then by all means, buy the book when it comes out. <laughs> this is one big infomercial, all right? That, that's how you should think about it. Uh, but I'll have a popular version along with it, so don't think that you're going to have to read a 600-page academic thing. Some of you will like it, though, uh, but I'll have a popular version to go along with it. Okay, so here it is. As I look at the cross and, and, and reflect on the way God reveals himself on the cross, because everything I, want, I, everything I want to have centered on the cross, there's three things that I notice that help me process this issue. Actually, a few more than that, but for our purposes this morning, we'll stick with three. Three things. First, on the cross, notice this, God reveals his self-sacrificial loving character not only by acting toward us, but also by allowing others to impact him. Okay, so the cross is definitely due to God's acting toward us. God is the one who initiated the plan uh, that involved outwitting Satan, as we saw as we looked at Colossians uh, chapter 2, uh, 14 and 15, and he initiated that plan, and, and God's the one who uh, took the initiative to be- become a human being, and, and he's the one who provoked the authorities in ways that were certain to get him crucified, like telling the Pharisees that the prostitutes are going into heaven before you guys, and, and cleansing the temple, and all those kind of things. So God was definitely acting toward us, obviously. But it's just as obviously that the cross is also, in part due, to God allowing others to impact him. And so Jesus allows Judas to betray him. That impacts him. Uh, God allows the soldiers to arrest Jesus and then to abuse Jesus and, and to beat him beyond recognition and then to crucify him. And God allows the principalities and powers to afflict him. These are all things that are done to Jesus. In the process, God's revealing himself. So on the cross, God reveals himself by acting toward us, but also by allowing others to impact him. Can I follow this? This is why the cross is at one and the same time horrifically ugly and unfathomably beautiful. The cross is horrifically ugly insofar as it reflects God allowing others, other sinners and, 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 and wicked fallen angels to impact him. That's what makes Christ appear as a God-forsaken criminal bearing our sins on the cross. It's horrifically ugly. But the cross is profoundly, infinitely beautiful. In fact, it's the definitive revelation of God's eternal nature because God was willing to act toward us. He was willing to humbly stoop to allow others to carry out their violence on him and in that way take on the ugly appearance of a God-forsaken criminal as though he was guilty of the sin of the world. You following this? So Luther, we saw, says that when we interpret Scripture, we should just look for Christ crucified. And I I agree with that. So 
when we interpret scripture, we should interpret it with this in mind, how God reveals himself. A lot of people assume, in fact, most people assume that if the Bible is God's word, it's all about God acting toward us. And then you have trouble explaining all the human elements of the Bible. But people think it's all God acting toward us. But see, that's not the way God reveals himself on the cross. And the cross is the paradigm for who God is and how he reveals himself. And so I have no reason to think that God, in revealing himself in Scripture, is just a one-way thing. As he does on the cross, in Scripture, God reveals himself throughout Scripture by acting toward us, but also by allowing others to impact him. So when I interpret the Old Testament through that lens, through the lens of the cross, I see that all that is beautiful in Scripture reflects God's action toward us. And all that is ugly in Scripture reflects God humbly allowing others to impact him. When I read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, I can see that all that is ugly, follow this, all that is ugly parallels the ugliness of the cross, where God allowed sinful humans and fallen angelic beings to impact him and make him appear far uglier than he actually was. But all that's beautiful in Scripture parallels the beauty of the cross, because it reflects a humble God who out of love was willing to stoop to appear much uglier than he actually is, because that's what his people needed him to do. And here's the really important point, at least as it concerns the question that we're addressing. Just as God appeared guilty of sin on the cross without actually engaging in sin, God never sinned. But he appears sinful on the cross, guilty of sin. Just as he appears guilty of sin on the cross without actually engaging in sin, so I'm suggesting, putting out here for us to think about, God appears horrifically violent sometimes in the Old Testament, but without engaging in the violence. Everything that's ugly on the cross is due to God allowing others to afflict him with their violence and their evil. It's never something that God himself does. So also, I'm proposing everything that's ugly about the Old Testament's portrait of God smashing families or commanding genocide. It reflects God allowing others to impact how he appears as he bears their sin. It doesn't reflect anything that he does. And God allows others to impact him on the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament for the same reason he allows others to impact him on the cross. Because he's a God who meets us where we're at. A God who bears uh, our sin. Because his people need him to do this, and the true God is loving enough and humble enough to do it. So the first point is that God reveals himself by beautifully acting toward us, but also by allowing humanity and fallen angels to impact him, which is why he takes on the appearance of something far uglier than he actually is. He absorbs that evil activity, as it were, that sin, and then mirrors it back. Number two. On the cross, God judges sin by withdrawing and allowing evil to run its course. Look at it. On the cross, God judges sin by withdrawing his protective presence from Jesus and delivering Jesus over to wicked humans and to fallen principalities and powers to experience the death consequences of sin that we deserve. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Paul says that God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up. For us all. And that Jesus was delivered over. See, that's the activity of God. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Delivered over to the wicked humans and the principalities and powers uh, to put him to death. Which is why on the cross, 
most profound verse in the Bible, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who is himself God, is experiencing God forsakenness. Because, in fact, that's what's happening on the cross. Jesus steps into our place and bears the consequences of sin that we deserve, and that is God forsakenness. God's judgment is withdrawing and letting sin run its course and, and, and experience the death consequences that sin inevitably always results in. That's the judgment of God. That's the wrath of God. Letting evil run its course. Self-employed. That's how he defeats uh, the, the devil we saw as we were studying Colossians 2, uh, 14 and 15. He causes evil to self-implode. See, the thing is this. Jesus died in our place by becoming our sin and bearing the punishment that we deserve. But notice this. God never lifted a finger against him. God didn't act violently towards him. God simply withdrew his protection and allowed wicked humans and angelic beings to carry out the violence that was in their heart. And since we should read the entire Bible through the lens of the cross, I propose that we should read it with this knowledge in mind, the knowledge about how God, in fact, judges sin. When I began to read the Bible this way, I found it on every page, or almost every page. You know, God's constantly turning people over. It, it, sin is, in essence, pushing God away, and there comes a point where God says, I'll, I'll grant you your wish. That's the wrath of God. You want to go that way? i got to let you go. And he does it with a grieving heart. His heart's always breaking. Uh, Jesus, who is our, our image of God, we see that when he's writing into Jerusalem, he prophesies a judgment coming on Jerusalem, and he's crying, it says in Luke. He's wailing, actually. And so behind every judgment in the Bible, we need to see a, a weeping God. But there comes a point where God says, you want to push me away? i got to let you go. i got to let you go. And so throughout the Bible, you read about God turning people over to their sin or withdrawing, or sometimes it says he hides his face, which is just another way of saying the same thing. Even in narratives that explicitly attribute violent actions to God, if you read them carefully and through the lens of the cross, you at least very frequently can find that, as a matter of fact, God didn't engage in any violence. He simply withdrew his protection and allowed wicked agents to carry out the violence that was in their heart, and that was the judgment on sin. And that leads to the third point, and that is this. On the cross, the Creator assumes responsibility for all that he allowed to take place in his creation. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us to internalize this, this one. On the cross, the creator bore the sin of the world as though he was guilty of it. On the cross, the creator assumes responsibility for all the sin and evil he allowed, which is why he takes on the appearance of one who is guilty of it. In other words, on the cross, God appears as if he did what he merely allowed. And then he suffers the punishment as if he did it, though in fact God's not guilty of any of it. When I began to read the Bible through this lens, through the lens of the cross, I found this happening all over the place as well. God is often spoken of as doing what, what, what the narratives themselves make it clear he only allowed. When you read it through the lens of the cross, you see a God who's always taking responsibility for the things that he allows to the point of allowing himself to be depicted as though he did it which is exactly what he does on the cross. Okay, so let's close this by bringing all th these three considerations together and now returning to the passage we started with, that passage in Jeremiah, the family-smashing deity. He always depicted as saying, I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. A horrific picture of God. It looks like God is acting like a Colombian drug lord here. 
smashing children and parents together. But if you read the narrative carefully, you'll find that God actually didn't lift a finger against anybody. All the violence that's done is done by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and, and his armies. And you can see that in, in Jeremiah's own book. So later on, we, we find in Jeremiah 21, the same way he speaks about Yahweh earlier, he now speaks about the Babylonians. So the Lord says, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. It's not God who acts violently. It's Nebuchadnezzar and his vicious armies. The only thing that God does is he stops protecting Judah from Nebuchadnezzar and the armies that want to carry out their violence against him. Judah, the city of Judah, had continually pushed God away with their sin, and there came a time where God, with a grieving heart, says, I've got to grant you your wish. And that is the wrath of God, letting sinners go their own way. You see it in Romans 1. You see it all over the place. God gave them over to the sin that they were choosing. And the consequence is death. The wages of sin is death. But it's not God who's doing the killing. With a grieving heart, God lifts the floodgates of his protection, and so a flood of violence ensues. When you read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, it reframes everything, which is what Paul's doing with the law. Right? When you read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, you see this. All the violence against Judah is done by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, not God. Yet God allows Jeremiah to make him appear violent for the same reason God allowed the violent agents around Jesus to make him appear as though he was sinful on the cross. He's a humble God who stoops to meet people where they're at and therefore bears their sin. He does it on Calvary. He's doing it in the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, it reframes everything. So just as God allows the sin of the world to impact how he appears on the cross, taking on an appearance that mirrors the sin of the world back to us, so also God allowed Jeremiah... Jeremiah's sin and his fallen perception of him to impact how he appears in this book, taking on an ugly appearance that mirrors the sin back to them, which is why he looks like an ancient Near Eastern warrior god in the book of Jeremiah. It's like God is like this Rorschach test, you know, and and you see in him what's in your heart. And God allows that to happen because that's what his people need him to do. It's what he does on the cross. It's what he does in the Old Testament Meeting us where we're at, bearing our sin, taking on an appearance far uglier than he actually is. When you read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, it reframes everything. And so the God who took responsibility for the sin of the world on the cross, taking on appearance of the one who he looks like he did what he merely allowed, so also in Jeremiah we see a God taking responsibility for the sin of the Babylonians. Like the king of the universe, he's owning up to it. My creation, I'll take responsibility for it, even though he's not guilty of any of it. He takes responsibility for the sin of the world and the cross and therefore looks as though he did what he merely allowed. So also in Jeremiah, he takes responsibility for the sin of the Babylonians and allows Jeremiah to depict him as doing what he merely allows. And this, folks, in all honesty, is how I believe these brutal portraits of God in the Old Testament smashing families, commanding genocide, ripping fetuses out of wombs. This is how I believe they point to the cross. The ugliness of Jeremiah's portrait parallels the ugliness of the cross, and that's all about how God allows 
fallen humans to impact how he appears. But the beauty of the cross is also paralleled in the beauty that we can discern in Jeremiah's barbaric portrait. And that's all about God acting toward us. We can see the same humble God stooping to bear our sin and appearing far uglier than he actually actually is. The Bible is God's word and it reveals God. But the revelation here, as we look at it through the lens of the cross, the revelation is not in the ugliness of the portrait. It's in the beauty of a God who loves us so much and is so humble, he's willing to step into that ugliness, bear our sin, and take it on as his own. And I see this happening over and over again. I've got a whole chapter of examples where authors say that God engaged in the violence, but if you read it through the lens of the cross and read it carefully, you'll find that actually God didn't do that. But he allows himself to be depicted that way as a way of taking responsibility for the sins of the world. As I, as I read, and this is just my perspective, but as I read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, I, I don't think I ever need to, to envision God ever actually, actually acting violent. He just allows himself to appear that way as a way of entering into the, the sin of his people. Read through the lens of the cross, I see all the ugliness as a shadow of the cross. It points by way of negative contrast, which is what Paul explicitly says about the law. I'm just applying it to nationalism and the violence. All the ugliness reflects a humble God who stoops to meet people where they're at. All the ugliness, as he does on the cross, all the ugliness uh, reflects a God who is willing to bear our sin and appear uglier than he actually is. All of the ugliness reflects a God who takes responsibility for all the sin of the world and therefore is depicted as doing what he merely allows. That, folks, is just where I'm at. Uh, That's my perspective. Um, It doesn't have to be yours. Uh, Chew on it. Be honest. Uh, If you find a better way, email me. I'm all ears. If it fits, wonderful. If it brings congruity, wonderful. If not, then then go back to the other option I gave or maybe something altogether different. What's all important here is, is this, that we, however we work it out, that we're honest and that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Know, however you work it out, that God looks like Jesus Christ. Uh, dying for the world on the cross. Uh, know that, that, that we, we serve a God whose humility is beyond fathoming, the all-powerful God of the universe, humbling himself to appear like a guilty criminal on the cross. is the God of the universe who humbles himself to appear in a lot of other ugly ways leading up to the cross. Know that we serve a God who is, whose love we can't begin to fathom, whose beauty we can't ever begin to even conceive. He's a God who enters into solidarity with, with us as he's been doing throughout all time, taking on our ugliness as his own in order that we can share in his beauty. Uh, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what happens on the cross. And we can see anticipations of that throughout the whole Bible if we read it through the lens of the cross. However we work it out, know that God is altogether lovely, altogether good, altogether beautiful. Everything that's beautiful comes from him. Everything that's ugly comes from some other source. Lock it in. Praise God. And that's all I got to say about that. Amen. All right.